every loving one of you. This is Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez. This is our last podcast of the year, 2019. In order to commemorate this last podcast, we're recording it a couple of days before New Year's. And I wrote something new, something that um, started as a free writing story. I've been doing those a lot lately, only because of time constraints. Uh, It's the only way I can force myself to write. So I've been writing these things, and they're a mix of fact and fiction, uh, nonfiction and fiction. Um, Call them creative nonfiction. I don't care. Call them whatever you want. They're just stories that feature some things that are real and some things that are not real, basically. And I hope to keep doing these throughout 2020. So this is, in some ways, a way to get me to keep going. But here's the last story. I hope you enjoy it. And Happy New Year. Mispronunciation. You corrected me as we walked to your favorite bookstore. I said possum, and you said a possum. And when I said myriad, you said myriad. Subsequent, you said subsequent. Niche, you said niche. And that one you got wrong, but you insisted you were right. I really think it's niche. It's French, you know, I said. Americans say niche. You said simply as if I should know better than to go against America. The bookstore was a tiny place shoved between a Cuban-themed restaurant and a boxing gym. And you looked for 10 days that shook the world by John Reed because we sat through three and a half hours of Reds. And I said I never liked Warren Beatty. That hair, I said. What about it, you said. It doesn't sit right on his big head. It's distracting. He's a legend. Really? In Hollywood. Right. And I left you standing there beside a stack of old Life magazines and photocopies of The Black Panther. And I asked the bookseller why photocopies of this one and originals of that one, and the gray-haired woman with bifocals barely sitting on her long nose looked at me and the stacks and said, I should ask the manager. Her cloudy eyes dropped back down to a tattered copy of Watership Down that she was reading before I interrupted her. I didn't see the point of asking her where the manager was. I headed to the back of the store, to the comics section. You call them graphic novels, but to me, they are my old friends. Cheap, inky pulp paper that left my fingertips dark and dry. I searched for the ones I remembered reading late at night beside the street lamp that cast a muted orange glow into my bedroom window. Squinting from one panel to the next, absorbing the stories like water. Each panel, a little universe of characters, action, snarky one-liners, victims and heroes, all walks of life making appearances in sequences that had a rising rhythm 
toy punchline or cliffhanger. I was never interested in superheroes unless they were flawed and vulnerable. I wanted stories. And when I discovered Love and Rockets by the Hernandez brothers, those comics fed me what I most lacked. A sense that how I desired to live can be possible, at least in an imaginary world. An invention made of characters, language, color, ideas, conflict, secrets. Some of the stories were salacious and melodramatic. The female characters, strong-willed, but tragic, like all those provocative but emotionally broken women played by Maria Felix. Other stories were freewheeling and absurd, like Buñuel films. I looked for these old friends, but all I could find were R. Crumb books filled with paranoid fantasies of female domination. I can't say these spoke to me in the same way that Love and Rockets did, because I was Latina and punk and angry and out of my element among the Italian and Irish Americans that hung out together in the cafeteria and were consumed with thoughts of finding wives and husbands and babies. They all wanted babies and two-car garages, and they all assumed I was a good cook. And some predicted I'd have a parcel of children and a domineering husband in a couple of years because that's what girls like me were taught to do. And when I thought about the role I was expected to play and the life of confusion and dissent I was truly embracing, I began doubting what it was that I wanted. And it's not like I didn't fall into the trap of being a girl. I had dolls. I kept forgetting them in places, and my mother would get very upset with me because I didn't take care of these babies the way a mother should take care of her child, and though I had no concept of what she was talking about, of the need to protect and nurture, I knew she was my mother, and she needed to protect me. Me, because it was all about me when I was a little girl, because little girls are sweet and innocent and must be protected from the bad people. And still, I never connected me with an inanimate doll, a distilled, dead, plastic thing that had eyes that would roll down clothes when you laid on the bed. This thing was not real, and my mother's anger confused me because she wanted me to think of these blonde, pink-skinned, rubbery things as real, as something I should cherish and love and protect. But I kept losing the dolls, and eventually, she stopped buying them. And as I got older and mother demanded I wear pretty clothes and comb my hair and behave and sit quietly with my legs closed and my skirt pulled down over my exposed knees, as I was told with some anxiety how large my breasts were getting and with some pride what a lovely figure I had and how I wasn't allowed to wear shirts with low necklines and tight shorts that sat too high over my butt and you better hide that curvy body. Don't take it for granted. Don't let other people see it for free. Don't let them enjoy or touch it. Don't let them use you because all anyone wants is to take and not give back. As I lived this dull existence, I craved the fantasy, the imaginary, the controlled space of a story and words 
and the dictation of action and reaction and moving it along for the sake of pacing and entertainment. And you found me crouched down, trying to read the titles on the spines of a set of Astro Boys and said you had no luck finding that book you most wanted, but somehow a book on warplanes stood out to you and you thumped through it and it reminded you of your childhood and how you were obsessed with World War II planes, B-17s, and the B-29, which was used in Hiroshima, and you remembered reading about the bombing in a grade school newspaper. You imagined how it may have felt to fly that plane on that day, and you believed the bomb was responsible for ending the war. Wars have no end, I said. There are moments of peace, but conflict is what keeps the world going. And it goes, and it goes, and goes, because what we do best is chase death. That's not how I see it, you said. Because you could afford to be the optimist in our relationship. Graduating college without any school loans to pay back, or not having parents who can't afford to pay their rent, or the constant reminder that the world does not see you, but sees what you wear and how you act and whether you straighten your hair or leave it curly, rarely caring about what you think and what you desire, but always wanting something from you. I see nothing changing, I said. The nothing is your something, you said. Nice nursery rhyme. I patted your belly. You're a real wordsmith. I never claimed to be one. You're the one obsessed with language. And yet I fail to communicate with you every time. It's your love of banter that gets you in trouble. Very few people know how to banter. Most take me seriously and then feelings are hurt. And I can see it in their eyes and I want to make it better so I laugh it off. But really it's no laughing matter. Once it's out. I can never take it back. There you go again. Have you not learned anything? You said. Most people forget what hurts them. I never forget. That's because you have befriended pain. He still had the warplanes book in his hand. I picked up a book of Soviet Union propaganda posters. Is that what you do? I said, not even bothering to look through the glossy book but instead throwing it back in a pile where it landed with a thud on Rumi. Yes. Teach me how. Are you making fun of me? Yes. And that's what made this relationship work. It was not that we understood each other or that we completed each other. We did not compliment each other. You are who you are, unwilling to change, and I am who I am embracing change, but still holding myself at a distance from you. And you accepted this, perhaps out of convenience. And I kept looking, knowing that you would always be there. Go on, leave me in the store. I need to keep looking. You waved a hand towards the door. What is it you think you'll find if I leave you? Something. And that's what you want? And we both stood for a moment, watching each other. That's all I can handle, you said. 
I want everything, I said. And as I left you rummaging through a dollar book crate, I thought about how cold it was this early in November. I should have felt something more than the sun in my eyes and the wind freezing the tip of my nose and tops of my ears. Splattered on the sidewalk outside the bookstore was an open carton of eggs with yolk and cracked shells around it. And I thought, mischievous, but heard your voice correct me. Mischievous. Thanks for listening to Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez. We will be recording some new podcasts in 2020. We're also going to be doing a live reading at KGB in the Red Room, which is the top floor there. And our live readings will take place the second Tuesdays of the month in 2020. First one is January 14th at 7 p.m. If you're in New York City, stop by, have a drink, listen to some words. We'll also have a special musical guest, which I'm extremely excited about. So if you want to check out the details to the reading, go to diggingpress.com slash reading dash series. That's diggingpress.com slash reading dash series. Until then, flowers.